Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents Podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Law Department Presents Podcast. I am Lieutenant Colonel David Seagraves, United States Marine Corps, and with me I have Major Dustin Morgan. And we have part two of United States versus Hassan. Yeah, so for people that did not listen to part one of United States versus Hassan, I recommend going back and listening to their, to that first episode. There you'll find a recitation of the facts that will be consistent to all the issues that we talk about. Again, as we did in part one of this episode, we'll brief additional facts as needed for each particular issue. In the first part of the episode, we gave an overview of the facts and briefed issue one and issue two of this extensive opinion. All right, so in our previous episode, we dealt with the first two assignments of error. Now we'll be moving on to assignment of error three. The issue is whether the military judge erred by failing to disqualify Lieutenant Colonel KG as a panel member. Now, Dustin, can you give us a few of the facts that support well, Appellate's argument in this case? So this case was, I mean, very well known throughout the military community and throughout the United States in general. So when you have cases that have this amount of pretrial publicity, there are unique problems and circumstances that arise in picking a fair panel. And if you think about it in the death is different context, that becomes even more important because every panel member is going to play quite an extensive role in in the litigation of this case and in the ultimate determination. Because if you think back to our first episode where I went through the, the procedural differences in the death penalty context, you need unanimity at all four of those major milestones. So you need unanimity at a finding of guilt, you need unanimity at the finding of an aggravating factor, unanimity at the weighing of the mitigation evidence versus the aggravating factor, and then unanimity in the ultimate punishment. So voir dire in this context becomes even more important and uh, you know just becomes magnified by you know, 100 times more when there's been extensive pretrial publicity. So to avoid some of the issues in this case, and at least to try to weed out any bias there could potentially be or any, any information that the panel members may be bringing in from the press and from the public, they sent out extensive pretrial questionnaires. They were 50 to 60 pages, contained hundreds of questions, and really looked into what the panel members were bringing into this case from previous knowledge. So the panel member at issue here, Lieutenant Colonel KG, sent in two questionnaires, interestingly. Not at the same time. Not at the same time. So the court goes through about how some of his answers may have potentially been problematic when he sent his, his first questionnaire in that he may have potentially made up his mind already about the guilt or innocence of the accused here, the guilt of Major Hassan, and may have already thought that, begin to think about what the appropriate punishment was. So about nine months after his initial questionnaire was sent in, he sent a second one in because in his words, his position had softened over time. Like during the time of his first questionnaire, he indicated to the court that he was in the throes of battalion command and may have been going through a period where he thought more harshly about some issues than than maybe he was now. So his second questionnaire 
I mean, potentially was softer than his first one. And I don't use soft in like a, a poor sense, but maybe he hadn't made up his mind um, about the about Maitre Hassan's guilt or innocence, and maybe he hadn't made up his mind about the ultimate punishment. Because you can't have panel members that have come in with a predetermined mindset. That's just not fair to the accused. During voir dire, um, it also came out that Lieutenant Colonel KG had a bumper sticker that had the words Major League Infidel on them on the back of his vehicle. When he was asked about that during voir dire, he indicated it was more just like an esprit de corps type thing that a friend had given it to him. Um, and it was just, if you were in the military during this time period, I mean, it was quite common to drive around a military installation and see those bumper stickers on cars. It was almost as if soldiers were taking back the term infidel, I think, is the way that they viewed it. Dustin, my exo from 3-4 when we were deployed to Afghanistan had one of those patches. Yeah, I'm very common to see going around. Importantly here, um, during voir dire, um, Major Hassan conducted it himself, obviously, because as we talked about last episode, he um, elected to go pro se and engage his, and partake in his own defense. And he um, did question Lieutenant Colonel KG some, but not about these issues. He seemed concerned about his ability to, um, to not consider that he was a practicing Muslim and not weigh that against him. And Colonel KG said, nope, I, w- I won't hold that against you. When it came time to challenge him for cause, the government didn't have a challenge and neither did Major Hassan. So the judge allowed Lieutenant Colonel KG to sit on the panel, and he's ultimately one of the people that had judged the death penalty um, to Major Hassan. So just to be clear for the uh, audience out there, uh, Major Hassan uh, could have challenged uh, KG for for cause, Uh, could have used a peremptory challenge. And and in fact, uh, normally when we question the legality of of, uh, not allowing a challenge for cause, you actually have to use a peremptory challenge on someone else. That's right. So if you, A, don't challenge someone for cause, or B, do challenge them for cause and don't use your peremptory, that typically has been seen as being waived going forward. So there's just, there's just no way, um, there's no way for this issue to ordinarily even rise to the appellate court level and for them to consider it because he did not challenge anyone for cause and he didn't use a peremptory on any of the panel members that were seated those days. And we'd say that's a waiver by operation of law, uh, but the but the military judge here went even further. Right. So the military judge asked Major Hassan several times, did he understand that he was waiving any potential challenges to the panel as constituted going forward? I think not once, but twice. She explicitly put it on the record. Like, you need to understand that this is a waived issue now. And it goes back to what we talked about last episode during the Feretta inquiry, where she told him that you bear the consequences of your legal decisions because you are expected to act as an attorney would during the course of the court martial. So... Given these bad facts uh, for the appellant uh, regarding waiver, they kind of did a little bit of a different tack here. Uh, they, they started saying that the military judge had a duty herself, that was their argument anyway, um, to kick this member. That's right. In the legal world, we call that a sua sponte duty on the part of the judge, to use a Latin term that I used to hate in law school. So they, they look back and they, they ask whether or not under RCM 912F4, whether or not the judge has a duty to kick a biased panel member off the panel. And the court really relies on the plain language of this RCM as it existed at the time of appellant's court martial, because we're two MCMs removed from, from the 2012 edition that was in operation at the time of his court martial, soon to be three when the new MCM comes out, the blue one that we're all excited for. Um, but they, they look at the language there and they say, and, and it says in quotations that the military judge, quote, may, in the interest of justice, excuse a member. 
end quote. And they rely on that word may. That's permissive. So there's no duty imposed on the part of the judge to kick a panel member if they perceive some sort of bias. It'd be interesting to note that the judge sat there during voir dire, observed Major Hassan's questions, observed his choice to keep him on the panel, and questioned him twice about his decision to waive any challenge to any of the panel members at the time. It would be an interesting argument to then come over the top of a litigant who's representing himself during the course of a criminal trial and then potentially overcome that strategic or, or who knows what the decision is for and kick the panel member herself. So I'll pack those two issues right there. Uh, first, plain text, as I said, may in the interest of justice excuse a member. Not shall, not must, but may. So there's discretion there. Yeah, and, and the CAF as currently constituted is a plain language court. I mean, there's no mistaking that. If you've listened to our episodes over the course of the past you know, six or seven months, a lot of times it comes down to what the language means in its plain context. And may is a permissive word. And I think that they, by using may, they went into that kind of abusive, abusive discretion standard we've talked about before. Uh, you know, obviously abusive discretion, you know, wrong findings of fact, wrong interpretation of law, and outside that wide range uh, of options available to them. Um, but going back to your other idea, another point, that Major Son was pro se, was representing himself, um, and had asked questions of members, had asked individual Vaudeer questions, that um, Shoney knew what was going on, um, and asked twice, said, no, I'm good with this panel. And so as you said, you know, if the judge came over the top and started kicking members, one could almost argue that they'd be denying him his right of a panel that's choosing. Right, because I, I think, sir, as a defense counsel, you heard my recitation of the facts here, and you heard what I said about his, his questionnaires coming in, like the fact that he had maybe made up his mind about guilt or innocence and the punishment. Like, alarm bells are definitely going off in your head. I know in, in my defense practice, there's no way that I would have allowed a panel member to sit in this, in this type of court-martial, especially where the death penalty is on the table. But we have to consider the unique circumstances and facts of this case, that he was a pro se litigant, that he engaged in voir dire, and he ultimately made the choice. So whether or not you would have, as a practitioner, allowed this this panel member to sit, I don't think the court the court is saying like that doesn't really matter here because he represented himself and he did elect for him to sit. And they also pointed out he had the standby counsel available to him. Uh, he had services of a self-selected, government-funded jury consultant, on whom he could reply uh, rely. Pardon me. Uh, somewhat of an argument that Lieutenant Colonel KG could have somewhat rehabilitated himself with a second questionnaire. That's out there too, got it. Um, but even that autonomy of Major Hassan, you know, he, you have to think maybe there's a reason he chose this, this person. Yeah, we'll never know, um, but I think that as the appellate, the appellate court has to assume that he had a reason for doing it because he, he did make the choice after engaging in voir dire. I mean, that, that's important here. He, he asked questions um, and he, he made arguments. He joined the government in a few challenges even, so it's, while this kind of circumstance may never arise again because it is super unique, a pro se litigant representing himself during the course of a death penalty litigation, I mean, we, we may never see that in the military again, but at least in this circumstance, the court said we have to abide by that decision. And like we've seen so many times before, they look at that, that kind of the third prong of the abuse of discretion. Uh, they say under abuse of discretion standard, there must be more than a mere difference of opinion. Mm -hmm. The challenge action must be arbitrary, fanciful, clearly unreasonable or clearly erroneous. That's right. 
And this is an extensive record that the judge created here. I mean, the judge was meticulous and they were careful. And typically when you do that, you're going to be afforded even more discretion. And here the judge was afforded a lot of discretion. All right. Now, I think we're about wrapped up with this issue as far as the legal issues. Now, takeaways for the field and fleet. So I think anytime you're dealing with a panel member issue and you're a government counsel, it's always best to not win the battle to lose the war. And what I mean here is if you have a close call, just understand that you're not going to have cases like this typically where the person's representing themselves and their decision is going to be respected. A lot of times you're going to be facing a challenge. If you have a questionable panel member, the liberal grant mandate is there for a reason. The accused has afforded a lot of latitude in selecting panel members through their counsel typically. So don't try to rehabilitate too much. Don't fight these issues too much because it's a structural error like we talked about last episode in the Waller context. If you lose this on appeal, the case goes back. Um, this is one of the most litigated things at the service courts, um, especially in the Army Court in particular. Um, improper challenges for cause, sorry, excuse me, improper Judges improperly not granting a challenge for cause is one of the most the issues where cases are reversed the most. As defense counsel, make your challenge, build your record, because you may win, you're an accused in a new trial if they're convicted, and the appellate courts look at it later. Completely agree with you. Um, and, and as a young trial counsel, uh, first lieutenant and Captain Seagraves, was deathly afraid of, of losing members and have to go back to the convening authority to appoint more. Uh, but in the end, Discretion is the better part of valor, you know, when it, especially when it's, it's a big case. Just err on the side of caution. Protect your record. Anything else on this matter? No, I think that one, again, another long issue, but I think we covered it right. Very well. So moving on to issues four and five, somewhat related. We'll take them in turn, but I'll just announce them now. So whether Article 45 Bravo's prohibition against guilty pleas to capital offenses is constitutional. That's issue number four. Then issue number five, assuming arguendo that Article 45B is constitutional, whether its application in this case nonetheless constituted reversible error. I think talking about issue four and five, like they, they just bleed together so much. So at the time of Major Assange's trial, Article 45B prevented an accused from pleading guilty to a capital qualifying offense. And what I mean by capital qualifying offense is does that offense carry with it the possibility of the death penalty? Since been changed in the 2019 version of the UCMJ, um, so it was adopt it was changed in that year to allow a death qualifying offense for a person facing death to plead guilty to a death qualifying offense. So that possibility is there, but at that time it wasn't. So Major Hassan initially wanted to plead guilty to charge sheet as it was construed. So 13 premeditated murders, 32 attempted premeditated murders. And the judge is like, nope, can't do that. Article 45B is clear. And they litigated this issue on the constitutionality of Article 45B, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, case law has said time and time again that that prohibition is constitutional. And the alternative, Major Hassan wanted to plead guilty to 13 unpremeditated murders and 32 attempted premeditated murders. The problem here is a case um, from 1989, United States versus Doc at 28 MJ 117. And what that case does is it disallows de facto guilty pleas. So that concept is, is actually quite difficult to understand. So there's a difference between actually pleading guilty as he attempted to do initially saying, hey, yes, I'm guilty of a death qualifying offense. Very clear that that's prohibited. What Doc prohibits is a case where an accused will come in and establish a factual predicate 
that would essentially leave the fact finder no other choice but to find them guilty of a death qualifying offense. So while you're not actually pleading guilty, in pleading guilty to a lesser included offense, you're establishing enough facts where the government would have to do nothing more for you to be found guilty of one of those qualifying offenses. So here what the judge said, the snowball effect of pleading guilty to 13 unpremeditated murders and pleading guilty to 32 attempted premeditated murders, eventually there'd be no other conclusion for the fact finder to make, but he had the premeditated, pre premeditated intent to kill in one of those 13 homicides. Therefore, the fact finder would be left with no choice but to find him guilty for one of those offenses, and in essence, he'd be pleading guilty to a death qualifying offense. And this kind of brings back uh, something we talked about in the United States versus Kim episode. Uh, that in the military, you don't just plead guilty. There's actually care inquiry. And then, you know, talking about the care inquiry means that the judge is actually going to take you through all of the definitions, all the elements, and you're going to have to admit to all the facts that support each one of those elements. And so that's all going to be on the record. That's right. So here, um, going to that care inquiry, I mean, Major Hassan would have had to admit to what he did at the SRP site that day, killing the 13 people, engaging in, you know, a shootout that lasted 20, 30 minutes. And eventually that snowball effect the judge found just would have been too much. And he, in essence, would have been pleading guilty to um, a death qualifying offense. Yeah, I think they said some, something along the lines of, practically speaking, because of the facts and context of this case, uh, the answer, well, attempted unpremeditated murder requires both intent to kill and an act that is more than mere preparation. and demonstrates the accused resolve to commit the offense. And the difference between that and premeditated design to kill is very slight. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I think that had he been allowed to set out the facts necessary to survive the care inquiry, there's just no other conclusion to make. Um, so it, it would have, in essence, rendered Article 45B's prohibition like, in effect there. Now, once again, the appellant has, has said that uh, denying his offer to plead guilty resulted in structural error. So again, flash, flashing lights off for the government here. Yeah, again, because if they lose this one, new trial automatically. So the court dispenses of, of the constitutional challenge pretty quickly. So the, the defense tries to make an argument here for the first time that the McCoy right to autonomy that we talked about in the first episode changes the nature of Article 45B's prohibition. The court rejects that argument, and they go back to their historical precedent where they said time and time and time again that Article 45B is constitutional. The last time that, that the CAF has touched this is United States versus Akbar. And in that case, they again reaffirmed Article 45B's constitutionality. They've really addressed this a few times. So United States versus Akbar, they affirmed the constitutionality of 45B. United States versus Gray, United States versus Loving. What those three cases all have in common is their death penalty cases. I mean, that, that's where it would come up logically, right? Because there's no other prohibition in other cases. And they say that McCoy doesn't change the nature of this. Because if you think back to last episode, when we talked about what the underlying facts of McCoy was, there, the accused was trying to maintain his innocence, not admit his guilt. So they're really different sides of the issue. Um, so it doesn't change the analysis, doesn't make any of their prior precedent um, invalid anymore, and they just reaffirmed that principle again. And one of the things um, they talked about in this opinion on this, on this issue is that pleading guilty could help mitigate and sentencing possibly because it, it shows that they're taking... Uh, accountability for their actions and things like that. However, the judge took steps and offered to take steps 
to get somewhat of the same result. Yeah, the judge offered to give an instruction during sentencing that Major Hassan attempted to plead guilty but was prohibited by operation of the law. I mean, that would be mitigating potentially. It's interesting during sentencing instruction that he declined to have that instruction given, um, but the judge did take steps to try to allow for that mitigation to occur. In, in fact, uh, the appellant did not put on any sentencing evidence. That's right. So I, I think they also looked at, uh, inevitably looked at the prejudice possibly from this. Uh, and they said, accordingly, the findings, well, the only result was that the appellant's guilt was subjected to adversarial testing. Okay, and through that testing, the appellant was found guilty. So they'll let you play guilty, but that means you got a full trial. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see the argument that it would be mitigating to not have, well, one, it's mitigating because you're admitting guilt. And I think that there is some benefit for the defense, at least to not have, you know, dozens of witnesses come up and talk about how horrible that the, the events were. I mean, because the testimony in this case most definitely would have had an impact on, you know, normal people, everyday people. Um, so, I mean, I, I can see the defense's argument here. It's just that the court's like, okay, but the statute existed as it was. We've said time and time again, it's constitutional. Like, it is what it is at this point. But hearing all that horrible testimony really still would be more of a sentencing concern. So on findings, either way, you're, you're guilty. Right. Yes, sir. Okay. But now, now moving to sentencing, uh, they, they pointed out that appellant demonstrated no remorse uh, during his opening statement. And he didn't put on a sentencing case or give a sentencing argument whatsoever. And he went so far as to affirmatively reject the military judge's offer to instruct the panel members, as we just said, that he attempted to plead guilty, uh, but was not permitted to do so by operational law. Yeah, I, I, and I think we've seen the court engage in this type of practice several times this term, where they're looking at prejudice during sentencing, and where the where the evidence is overwhelming in a case like this, they're going to be like reticent to find any kind of prejudice. Agreed. Is there anything else we need to talk about on this issue, or these two issues, pardon me? Yeah, I think moving to the dock issue next. I mean, so what the defense here was asking the court to do is overturn their precedent. So they'd have to overturn dock to find that the judge erred here and not allowing him to plead guilty to those lesser included offenses. So they go through the analysis to see whether or not dock was unworkable and should be overturned, and they determined, no, dock was at the time good law, should still be good law because the concerns that Congress possessed the time of enacting Article 45B in prohibiting death-qualifying death offenses to be pled guilty to still existed um, at this time, and the law that followed from DOC is, is still good law, so they refused to overturn that precedent as well. I think they said, as you said earlier, under the facts of this case, it would be possible for the appellant to be convicted of the charged capital offense without presenting any additional evidence uh, if he had pled uh, to unpre unpremeditated murder and attempted premeditated murder. That's right think this is a fairly rare situation unless you're doing a capital case probably not applicable to most of the field and fleet yeah and 45b has been amended so i mean i think that this this issue probably well most definitely will not arise again at least in this context because an accused would be able to plead guilty to a death qualifying offense now uh, as long as the death penalty is not mandatory which as we know there's no offense uh currently under ucmj that is mandatory for right correct yes sir all right so we'll move on to issue six Issue six is whether the prosecutor's sentencing argument impermissibly invited the panel to make its determination on caprice and emotion. Yes. Um, so at issue here, it's really two things. Um, so the defense here is arguing that the 
the government engaged in impermissible um, prosecutorial misconduct during the course of their sentencing argument. And it really boils down to two things. So the, unfortunately, one of the victims, PB2FV, was pregnant at the time of Major Assange's offenses. So she unfortunately perished as one of the 13 victims of the murders, and so did her unborn child. Major Assange was not charged with the death of the unborn child. There was extensive pretrial litigation on, under MRE 404B, which allows you to bring in other offenses for a non-propensity purpose. So you're not saying that he's a bad person and therefore would commit similar types of offenses. What you're bringing in is for some other purpose. So the government was allowed to talk about the fact that, he, uh, that PB2FV was pregnant at the time she was killed. So during the course of the sentencing argument, the, process, the, the TC mentioned that specifically, um, he said one of the following quotations that the court highlights. So a mother's thoughts, not for herself, not for her own life, but for that of her unborn child, whose final words were, my baby, my baby. A single bullet punctured her lungs and her heart, a single bullet ended her life and that of her unborn child and broke her father's heart. A single bullet, two lives lost, a father's change forever. And what the defense here is arguing is that inflamed the passions of the panel to an extent that's unallowable, and that's what constitutes prosecutorial misconduct. It's also similar to the argument that the defense made in wit. Um, so what they are also claiming that the TC did is ask them to take an us versus him mentality. So again, using quotations from the sentencing arguments, you should, however, have mercy in your sentence. It should speak to the 13 souls who have departed our formation. You should reserve your emotion for their souls and your compassion for their families and your mercy for their memory. So again, the fact that the, the TC here um, used the words our formation and reserve your emotion for their souls, basically the defense is arguing that it, it it created an us versus them mentality and, and ordered them to use their emotions rather than the sentencing criteria the judge instructs the panel on. So the wickets that they have in place that we talked about during the first, first episode. And that's always not allowed. You can, you can never ask a judge to, uh, excuse me, never ask the panel to use their emotions in, in addressing the sentence. So for those two reasons, the, the my baby, my baby, and the um, us versus them and emotional, the, the emotional pleas, the defense argued that the, the sentencing argument here was impermissible. Sure. And also with that, that, that first person type of uh, pronouns there, he also later on said, do not be misled, do not be confused, do not be fooled. He is not giving his life. We are taking his right. life. Again, getting that us versus uh, them mentality. Um, so going back to the the pregnancy and the my baby, my baby um, comments. And they gave, well, there's two reasons for it that was initially allowed into court. Uh, the trial judge ruled that it was res geste evidence or basically in the same transaction occurrence uh, of the crimes. Uh, they say, well, with res geste, if you don't allow that in, it's like you're coming into the middle of a sentence, right. not hearing the, the beginning of right. it. Um, so that was a ruling there. Uh, the government offered, also offered that was used to prove premeditation uh, because she said that before he did, in fact, pull the trigger. Yeah, and that, that never really fleshed out a trial, it appears. Like, that that wasn't really used as, as um, like, a viable theory of why it would have came in. But I think the Reg Geste is probably what won the day here. It's hard to tell the story without, you know, being able to hear what the victims of the crime said during its commission. Makes but sense. But regardless, it's in. Um, the panel heard it during the merits portion of the phase. Uh, I think it's just the highlighting it during the, highlighting it during the sentencing argument that the defense takes on bridge with. Now, like a number of other sentencing argument cases, uh, there was no objection here. 
That's right. So we are again in the plain error context. Um, so it has to be plain and obvious error, and there has to be prejudice to a substantial right of the accused. Um, and a lot like the cases that we've talked about this term, the court really struggles to find prejudice here. Um, because again, you take the evidence in total, the weight of the um, sentencing evidence that was put on during the case, the weight of the victim's testimony, the weight of the victim's family member's testimony. Um, as you said just a few minutes ago, the fact that the accused showed seemed to show no remorse during the course of the trial. I mean, the, the court just refuses to find prejudice here, and they say that the government counsel's actions, even if they were like improper, did not um, lead to prejudice of the accused. So I think any more analysis kind of goes under that, that idea of takeaways for the fleet in the field. Um, maybe easy to wrap it up with less is more. Yeah. I mean... We, we see these in cases where typically there are pretty gruesome facts. I mean, it's, it's telling that we've seen these cases and it, we've seen this type of issue in homicide cases mostly. I mean, we talked about it in Wit, talked about it in Norwood and Edwards. I mean, that it's typically in, in this type of context. If you have facts that are going to speak for themselves, sometimes it's best to let the facts speak for themselves. And, and here is probably the perfect example of that. Thirteen murders. 31 attempted murders. Again, facts speak, speak for themselves. Uh, one could argue that if, if you're going to make an argument for a capital case, this would be the one, and, and no need to, to, to gild the lily. Yep. And defense counsel, I mean, I know this is different because pro se. I mean, you have to object. You don't want to be. You don't want to be in plain error ever. Like you want to be in, in a different type of review. Um, so if you hear something that is objectionable, like don't be afraid to object, even if during argument. Well, listeners, we really, really appreciate you spending your time with us. Uh, but as promised, we're going to give every issue uh, a full evaluation and discussion. Uh, and so that means we're going to have to take this to a third episode. Once again, appreciate you listening. Uh, and as Josh Mickelson would say, don't forget to smash that subscribe button. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's or the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Thanks, counsel, for both sides. The court will stand in recess until further order of the court.